Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 85, Kochte Nuova. This week, we're back to action stations. We resume our narrative in 1235, when Frederick II gathered his vassals in Mainz to implement his grand plan to regain imperial rights in northern Italy. He picks up where his grandfather Barbarossa and his father Henry VI had to leave things, trying again, but this time with the resources of southern Italy behind him. And it's déjà vu all over again. Before we start, just a reminder, the History of the Germans podcast is advertising-free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website, historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Jeff, Alan and Noah who have already signed up. As I said, we resume our narrative in 1235. Frederick has just apprehended and imprisoned his son Henry, the famous seventh in brackets, to regain the support of the imperial princes. He needs them to return imperial power to northern Italy. As this will be the last great struggle of the House of Hohenstaufen, and in some ways the last attempt at an empire that is truly holy, truly Roman and truly an empire, let's first take a look at the big, big picture. For that, we have to go back to 1077 and the investiture controversy. Up until then, the emperors relied heavily on the imperial bishops to provide the administration of the realm and the resources they needed for war. The bishops had received a large chunk of what used to be the crown lands, as well as rights and privileges to fund these activities. Over the 145 years following Henry IV's penance in Canossa, the crown's access to these ecclesiastical resources had become less and less immediate, until in 1220 Frederick II puts the nail in. He grants the Confederatio Cum Principus Ecclesiasticis, which formally transferred all imperial rights and privileges within their territory to the bishops in perpetuity. From that point onwards, the bishops were no longer obliged to support imperial military efforts beyond the standard duty of an imperial vassal. They still often did, but on their own volition, not because they had to. The emperors tried to fill the gap left by the disappearance of the imperial church system with other sources of income and soldiers. Henry IV, Henry V, Lothar III and Conrad III tried to create a coherent imperial territory that was meant to act as a nucleus of a centralized government. That policy put them into conflict with imperial princes and resulted in a near-endless civil war. Barbarossa broke out of this gridlock by shifting his focus to northern Italy. If he could make the rich cities of Lombardy pay for the cost of his administration and his military, he could use that to consolidate royal power, as was happening in France and England around the same time. And he would avoid conflict with the imperial princes. Northern Italy was an attractive target for a number of reasons, apart from the fact that it was rich. Firstly, the emperor held the regalia as successor to the ancient Lombard kings, and they had never given these over to the cities, hence they were still his. And secondly, the imperial princes were happy to support a campaign in northern Italy in exchange for plunder, land and titles down south. And then third, the Lombard cities were disunited. They had two principles, all my neighbours are my enemies and my enemies' enemies are my friends, hence my neighbour's neighbour is my ally. 
The political landscape looked like a chessboard, where all the white squares fought all the black squares. It is very unlikely that Barbarossa wrote this down as a grand strategic plan, so it's just ex-post rationalization. But it sort of helps getting your head around what happened. Barbarossa's initial campaign was successful. Not much of a surprise. His army, supplied by German princes and Italian allies, namely Cremona and Pavia, besieged and ultimately defeated Milan and its allies. On the back of that success, Barbarossa issued the laws of Roncaglia, that consolidated all the imperial rights, in particular jurisdiction, taxation and the selection of the city councils in the hand of the emperor. However, things went pear-shaped fairly quickly. Barbarossa handed out brutal punishments to the defeated cities. Crema and Milan were both flattened, and their citizens were forced to live in the open countryside. The suppression of the Milanese in particular was a costly exercise, and the broken communes delivered little, if anything, to the imperial coffers. As a consequence, the tax burden shifted more and more onto the allied cities. Cremona, Lodi and the others had not expected that support for the imperial cause would put them into the same position as their defeated enemies. The emperor had overstretched the patience of the communes. Led by Cremona, Barbarossa's former ally, the citizens of Milan returned to the ruins of their old home. The northern Italian cities buried their conflicts and united into a league against Barbarossa. Moreover, the papacy, worried about the presence of the emperor just north of Rome, threw its lot in with that league. And the king of Sicily, as well as the Byzantine emperor, enemies for centuries, also ganged up on the king from the north. In 1167, Barbarossa attempted to steal their thunder. He marched one of the largest medieval armies ever mustered down to Rome. He took the city and nearly caught Pope Alexander III, but his forces succumbed to dysentery. The flower of the German chivalry sank into the filthy mud. After that disaster, support for southern adventures vanished. Barbarossa will make one last attempt in 1176 that fails before Alessandria, the city of straw, and is followed up by the final defeat at Lignano. In 1183, Barbarossa signs the Peace of Constance that guarantees the Lombard cities complete autonomy within the empire in exchange for an annual payment. The great fight for northern Italy, and with it the fight for a sustained basis for imperial rule, seems lost for good. But not so fast. As one of the last acts before his death on crusade, Barbarossa plants a seed for one last attempt to gain control of northern Italy and build a central imperial monarchy. The marriage of his son, Henry VI, with Constance, the heiress of the Kingdom of Sicily. But for the four decades from 1189 to 1235, nothing comes of it, as far as the Lombards are concerned. Philip of Swabia, Otto IV and Frederick II in his first decades on the throne did not have the resources to make any inroads in northern Italy. The communes are free to do as they like, and what they really like is fighting each other. The original Lombard League dissolves in 1208. Whatever payments were made under the Peace of Constance cease completely. Lombardy reverts rapidly back into its old chessboard pattern. My neighbor is my enemy, my enemy's neighbor is their enemy, and therefore my friend. History does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. Frederick II's position in 1235 almost perfectly mirrors Barbarossa's position in 1152, i.e. firstly, Frederick has a legal basis to assert imperial rights in Italy, as the League had broken the peace of Constance, disobeyed imperial orders 
and thereby forfeit its autonomy. And secondly, the imperial princes were on his side. They were obliged to support his move into Italy after he had sacrificed his oldest son for the project and given them the same privileges the bishops had received. And thirdly, the Italian cities were again disunited. The Lombard League had reformed in 1226, but with fewer members and less coherence. But not just that. He also had resources his grandfather could not call upon. The first of those were the riches and the military power of the Kingdom of Sicily. Opinions vary about what Sicily could bring to the party. But you would not be laughed out of a history seminar if you guessed them to be similar to England's at the time, if not more. We have a register of feudal obligations for the Duchy of Puglia and the Principality of Capua that adds up to an obligation to field 8,000 knights and 11,000 foot soldiers for these two principalities alone that would be larger than both armies fighting at Bouvines combined. However, we should never forget that there's a time element here. A vassal was only obliged to serve for 40 days. To have an army in the field all year round, you need to divide the total by factor 9. That would mean Puglia's and Capua's obligation was a more manageable 900 knights and 1200 foot soldiers, and the whole of the kingdom would therefore field maybe 3,000 knights and 5,000 foot soldiers on a continuous basis. And then there were the Saracens of Lucera who were paid soldiers and came allegedly to 7,000. So a very sizable army even in a pan-European context. The other military advantage came from a man called Ezzelino da Romano, who is an entirely new type of power player. A type that would dominate Italian politics well into the early modern period. To explain his rise, we need to take another look at the political setup of the Italian communes. Each of these cities was riven with discord. It's often abbreviated as the fight between the Ghibellines, supporters of the emperor, and the Guelphs, supporters of the papacy. But the reality was more complex. Socially, Ghibellines were often aristocratic knights who just happened to live in fortified houses in the cities. The Guelphs usually recruited amongst the rising merchant and banker class. But then there were all sorts of personal animosities and feuds going back decades. Think Montagues and Capulets. These disparate factions were simply unable to agree on any of their fellow citizens as a military and administrative leader. The only solution was to bring in someone from outside who would be neutral, could keep the peace and lead the city's military contingent in war. This was called a podesta and he had often dictatorial powers and to stop him from actually becoming dictator, his term was usually limited to just one year. Being a podesta became a lucrative career for the nobility of northern Italy. Some did it as a job, others did it while still loyal to their hometown. Venice, for instance, tried to control the cities on the mainland through Venetian podestas. Ezzelino was one of these northern Italian nobles based in what is now called the Veneto. He had his first break when he became Podesta of the city of Verona in 1226, where he stayed with interruptions until he resigned in 1230. He returned in 1232, called in by his supporters within the city. Now, Ezzelino was no Cincinnatus. Once he had obtained the role of Podesta, he showed no intentions of ever leaving again. He simply stayed put, in charge of the military and holding the city fortresses. He did become the city's tyrant and ruler 
ending its time as a self-governing commune. Ezzelino would remain Podesta of Verona until his death. As we will see, Ezzelino will gain more Podesta positions over time, usually by force until he commanded almost the entirety of what is now the Italian region of Veneto, minus the city of Venice. Ezzelino was famous for the brutality of his rule. Stories of decapitated adversaries and children of once eminent citizens ending up destitute and begging for food were everywhere. Dante placed him into the seventh circle of hell, where murderers and thugs sink into rivers of blood and fire. Ezzelino was one of the first of these Italian city despots, the Della Scala, the Visconti, the Gonzaga, the Malatesta and so forth. Ezzelino had declared for Frederick in 1232 and in 1237 marries Selvaggia, one of Frederick's illegitimate daughters from a relationship with an unknown mother. The alliance with Ezzelino was an important support for his cause, but it would also bring him into conflict with Venice. At this time, Venice was usually neutral in the fights on the mainland. The city had no mainland territory yet and no intention of acquiring any. They were solely maritime in outlook and focused on the east. They were also formally not part of the Holy Roman Empire, but of the Empire of Byzantium, so a return of imperial regalia would not necessarily bother them. But what did bother them was a massive thug in the form of Ezzelino da Romano on their doorstep. So with Ezzelino came the enmity of Venice. So to summarize the position on the verge of war in northern Italy, we have on Frederick's side the imperial princes, the Italian cities of Cremona, Pavia, Parma and a few more, the Kingdom of Sicily and Ezzelino da Romano. On the side of the League were, well, the members of the League. That means Milan, but also Lodi, Crema, Bergamo, Brescia, Verona, Vicenza, Padua, Treviso, Mantua, Alessandria and Vercelli. And there was support from Venice. And what about the Pope, you ask? Well, technically, the Pope and Frederick were at peace. They had agreed to a mutual understanding in 1230, after Frederick had chased the papal troops all the way back to Rome. And it still granted His Holiness a general settlement, instead of coming in and slapping him in the face, as the King of France will do so successfully in 1303. In the subsequent period, Frederick would regularly support the Pope, help him out with the soldiers and generally maintain a good relationship. All that excommunication stuff seems to be forgotten. Now, in light of that, the Pope could not take sides, but had to act as peacemaker. Though in reality, he did not want Frederick to succeed. Not at all. If Frederick had won Lombardy, the church would be completely encircled. And in that case, there would be no more kissing of feet and no more holding of the reins of horses for the successor of St. Peter. So, the League had the tacit but not the formal support of Gregory IX. Now, so much about the lay of the land. Let's get into the action. In 1235 at the Royal Assembly at Mainz, Frederick declares an imperial sanction against the cities of the Lombard League, calls his vassals to go to war in Italy in 1236. He states the following demands. 1. The cities have to swear an oath of fealty to their emperor. 2. The reformed League of 1226 is to be dissolved. 3. The imperial regalia, as laid out in the laws of Rencalia, are to be returned to the emperor. And four, the cities provide satisfaction to the emperor to make up for the insults he had endured. Now this last point refers to the blocking of the Alpine passes 
that had stopped the German vassals of the emperor from joining the crusade in 1226 and in coming to his assembly at Ravenna in 1231. The Lombard cities refused all that by referring to the Peace of Constance without saying anything about the failure to make any payments for the last 30 years. The Pope suggested arbitration. An imperial assembly with papal participation was called for Piacenza in 1236 to discuss the fight against heresy, the disagreements in Lombardy and another crusade. Item 1 and 3 of that were clearly put in to placate the Pope, which did not quite work. The Pope laid out the terms of his arbitration, which said that whatever the Pope decided, the Emperor was to follow to the letter without recourse, since the verdict of the Holy See was supreme. In a private letter, Gregory IX came out with his most famous comment, quote, The necks of kings and princes bend under the knee of the priest, and Christian emperors must subject their actions not to the Roman pontiff alone, they have not even the right to rank him above another priest. In other words, according to Gregory IX, the emperor of the Romans ranks below a village parson. This hyperbole of the papacy in the 13th century never ceases to amaze me. Gregory is writing this letter from Angani, a small town in the papal lands, because for the umpteenth time the Pope had been thrown out of Rome by the city magistrates. The Pope cannot even get a city bailiff to take his orders, but commands an emperor to accept whatever his decision might be. Frederick does not even respond to the letter. The negotiations which Hermann von Salza is still conducting with the Pope might drag on to the accompaniment of military campaigns. In this affair, only deeds could decide. Frederick II appears in Verona in August 1236 with a thousand knights that joined another 500 sent ahead to secure this important city at the exit of the Brenner Pass. The fact that Ezzelino da Romano was Podesta of Verona was certainly helpful. The first objective was to link up with the troops gathered at the loyal city of Cremona. An army of the League tried to prevent this by blocking the road between Verona and Cremona. But the Ghibelline city's troops took a major detour north via Brescia and then joined the Emperor, which allowed the united army to crack open the road to Cremona. Ezzelino held the Verona end and Frederick II the Cremona side. And then nothing much happened, until the end of October, when the cities of Vicenza, Treviso, Padua and Mantua raised an army to take on Ezzelino down in Verona. Ezzelino called on Frederick for help, and the Empress' troops covered the 120 kilometers distance to a position east of Verona in one day and two nights. When he get there, quote, in the time it takes a man to eat a piece of bread, he switched strategy and pushed east to Vicenza. That was a very smart move. The army of Vicenza was standing before Verona, and when they realized the emperor was heading to their defenseless hometown, the Vicentini dropped everything and chased after him. The other contingents did the same for fear their city would be next, and Ezzelino was free again. Frederick had half a day on his pursuers, arrived at the city of Vicenza, got in, and bang, had conquered his first city. He made Ezzelino the Podesta of Vicenza. The fall of Vicenza had a big impact on the other eastern cities. Ferrara, Treviso and Padua 
the by far richest city of the Veneto, save for Venice itself, all fell to Frederick and his allies. Izzelino was made Podesta of all of them, an imperial vicar, kicking off his tyrannical reign in the Veneto that would last over 20 years. In the first half of the next year, 1237, military activity in Lombardy itself slowed down. Frederick had to go back to Germany since the Duke of Austria had refused to appear at the Royal Assembly and refused to support the Italian campaign, which was seen and meant to be a rebellion. We'll talk about that in more detail in a later episode, but for now it's enough to mention that Frederick was successful and in a deviation from typical pattern of behavior north of the Alps, Frederick deposed the Duke of Austria and attempted to incorporate the duchy into his personal domain. Now that has not happened for quite a while. Another sign of how his power and prestige has risen was that the princess, without any concessions, elected Frederick's second oldest legitimate son, Conrad, as King Conrad IV. However, Conrad was not crowned as his brother had been, presumably to keep him on a tighter leash. But then, he was also only nine years old. In the meantime, good old Hermann von Salza still tried to negotiate a settlement involving the papacy. Positions had thought a bit in light of the setbacks for the League, and Gregory IX replaced his legate with one more amenable to the Emperor. The Lombards as well were looking for some sort of compromise. But the Venetians were refusing to back down. Ezzelino on their doorstep and a tighter imperial control over Lombardy made them nervous. They managed to scupper any solution by getting the Podesta of Piacenza, who was a Venetian, to make the citizens swear never to accept an imperial Podesta, which was one of Frederick's key demands. In late summer 1237, Frederick reappears in Italy. His next objective is Mantua, the strategically most important city in northern Italy. Mantua sits right in the middle of all major road connections north-south and east-west. It is surrounded by marshes and easy to defend. In the 18th century, the Habsburgs extend the fortifications and create three artificial lakes that turns it into the key to Italy. Napoleon will spend almost two years trying to break this fortress. Frederick was quicker, or luckier. After his army captured two castles on the way to the city, the political weights in the city councils shifted and Mantua declares for the empire. Next on the list is the city of Brescia. Frederick takes another fortress that protected its approaches from the south. The road to his target is now open, except for the trifling matter of a league army 10,000 strong standing between him and the city. As the leader of an army of knights, Frederick would have loved to take them on in an open battle, but that is exactly what the League does not want to do. The city contingents had no structural advantage over the armies of knights and emperor could field. What the cities had were two things. The great walls that were almost impossible to break with the technology available at the time, and the resources to pay soldiers to stay in the field almost permanently. Hence, the strategic objective was to keep the pressure on the imperial side, prevent them from establishing a long siege, but mostly keeping them wandering around the countryside until the vassal's allotted time was up and or the emperor runs out of money. With that strategy, the League was quite successful in the late summer and autumn of 1237. For two months, the two armies had lain facing each other near Ponte Vico, separated by a marshy little river which there flows into the Olio River. 
operations had come to a standstill. The emperor could not allow his heavy cavalry to attack across the marshy land. The Lombards accepted no challenge. November was almost over. Negotiations had been unsuccessful in spite of considerable concessions by the towns. There seemed to be no hope of dealing a decisive blow to the Lombards before the year was out. On November 24, Frederick orders his camp to be broken up. His men build bridges across the Olio, which runs north to south from the Alps to the Po River. From the other side of the Olio, it is about a three to four hour ride south back to Cremona, where Frederick had his winter quarters. As the Lombards see Frederick setting off for home, they too decide the campaign is over for the year. They pack up and march north. The largest contingent of this army was from Milan. To get home, they too had to cross the Olio. They decided to march about 50 kilometers north along the river. That, they thought, would be far enough from Cremona and Frederick's army to be safe from any attacks during the dangerous crossing. And that is exactly what Frederick's plan has been. He had only sent his foot soldiers in the train back to Cremona. His armored knights on horseback and his Saracen bowmen he kept with him on a clandestine march following the Olio River upstream, shadowing the Milanese. They waited for the enemy to cross. On the 27th of November 1237 they spotted them near the town of Corte Nuova. Immediately the vanguard of 500 knights fell on the unsuspecting Milanese. Shortly after, Frederick himself arrived with several thousand knights. Finally, he had the open battle he had craved. At this point, it was a pure cavalry battle. The Saracens on foot had not yet arrived and the city forces tended to be dominated by riders. The Milanese fell back to their Caroccio. I know, I've described the Caroccio several times in this podcast, but I'm still amazed by these contraptions. A Caroccio is a huge ox-driven cart that carries the standards of a city and often a crucifix as well. It is the rallying point for the army similarly to the imperial eagles and the French oriflamme. The difference is that the bannerman of a knightly army sits on a horse, and if things turn nasty he can turn around and run, or he may be cut down and the flag disappears in the melee. Once the flag has fallen, a knight can also leave the field of battle without much loss of honour, as the case is clearly lost. The concept that it was dishonourable to flee whilst the standards are still flying also applied to the communal armies of northern Italy. However, an enormous ox-driven cart can neither run away nor is it easily overturned. Hence the knights in the city armies held out longer and fought harder than anyone else. The loss of the Caroccio was the biggest humiliation a city could endure and the capture of an enemy Caroccio tends to be celebrated for centuries afterwards. Okay, here we are. The Milanese have fallen back to their Caroccio, determined to defend it to the last. They had done that in their great victory at Legnano, where Emperor Barbarossa could not break the defence, was unhorsed and then trampled into the ground. For three days he had been presumed dead before he returned to Pavia, broken and dishevelled. But this time it was a different emperor, and it seems a different Milanese army. Frederick and his men attacked in wave after wave. Only when night fell did they have to stop. Frederick ordered his men to sleep in their armour as fighting was to resume at first light. Meanwhile, the 7,000 Saracen bowmen on foot had arrived, 
either towards the end of the fighting or in the night. At sunrise, Frederick's army witnessed a most unusual sight. The Milanese, famed for their courage and ferocity, had fled. The Carroccio stood, undefended. They could see their enemies running home as fast as their legs could carry them. A thousand knights and three thousand foot soldiers were taken prisoner, including Pietro Tiepolo, the Podesta of Milan, who was also the son of the Doge of Venice. Very few medieval battles ended with such comprehensive defeat. In the contemporary propaganda, the battle and the narrative around it takes on a distinctly Roman tinge. Though most of the imperial knights had come from Germany, their battle cries had allegedly not been German, but they came out in the Latin of ancient Rome. Miles Roma, Miles Imperator, they shouted. Roman soldiers, imperial soldiers. Frederick entered Cremona a few days later in the manner of a Caesar, Pompey or Trajan. As in the ancient triumphs, staged to honour successful generals, the spoils of war are paraded through the streets of Cremona. The great Carroccio of Milan is not pulled by oxen, but by one of Frederick's elephants. On its platform, tied to the lowered mast that once flew the standard of proud Milan, leans Pietro Tiepolo, Podesta of the city and most noble of prisoners. Frederick II has reached the absolute high point of his political career. Let's hear how Ernst Kantorowicz interpreted this event. Quote, the emperor's yellow banner with the Roman eagles floated aloft, while from a wooden tower on the elephant's back trumpeters made known the triumph of the new divus Caesar Augustus. The emperor himself told the Romans that his triumph was a reversion to the original Roman form. The intoxication of this exotic, pagan Roman, assuredly most unchristian, celebration of victory marked a turning point in Frederick's life. All the magnificent Roman titles which he, like his predecessors, bore were justified. The empty formula, meaninglessly used, Imperator Invictus, suddenly meant once more what it had meant of old. Without the need of transcendental interpretation, he was now in the naked, literal sense, Felix Victor Ac Triumphator. The shades of Rome of the Romans and their Caesars had tasted blood. They began to stir again and to be visible in the flesh once more, a genuine breath of antiquity revived by life itself. Yeah, I too struggle with that weird pathos. But it isn't that wide off the mark. Frederick at this stage of his life increasingly identifies with the emperors of ancient Rome and their practically unlimited power. It is this hubris that will stop him from turning an extremely rare, complete victory into a sustainable political position. How that pans out, we'll discuss next week. I hope you will join us again. Now, before I go, let me thank all of you who are supporting the show, in particular the patrons who have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. It is thanks to you that this show does not have to do advertising for products you do not want to hear about. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the History of the Germans, it's more likely to be seen by others, hence bringing in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter, at Germans History, and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes. <laughs>